Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss and beyond. Remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. So be sure to seek medical support from a qualified health professional. Welcome back. This is episode 83 of the High on Life podcast. And today we're talking all about menopause. And I am so happy today to be joined by Shannon Kenrick Rochon. And Shannon is a strategic thinker who has been drawn to healthcare for as long as she can remember. And she has expanded her nursing career with a master's of nursing and then moved into the role of nurse practitioner. She has a passion for women's health and leadership and has been involved in research, education, concussion medicine, hormone replacement therapy, and um, musculoskeletal pain management as well. And Shannon has, she shares my enthusiasm for the outdoors. She shares that with her two children and her husband and has many adventures in paddling, which I love, skiing, trying new sports and discovering new places along the way. So I'm really happy to be having this conversation. Welcome Shannon to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So great. Okay. Well, maybe you can just start by telling us how you got interested in menopause treatment and women's health. Oh, yes. So I, I kind of fell into it a little bit. I, when I was an NP, I did a lot of, when I started as an NP, I did a lot of work as in concussion and started looking at hormones in that context and then kind of went down a rabbit hole with my training and said, oh, I think there's a lot more to this hormone thing and really got me passionate about that. One of my passions in general in medicine is around maintaining quality of life, particularly for females and what that looks like. It's one of the things that I love about exercise medicine and things like that. So it it aligned really well with those values about seeing the changes in mobility and activity related to that sort of 40 to 60 year old age group, which is a pretty big group and the role of hormones in that. Yeah. That's so, so great. So tell us a little bit about what you do for women in the menopausal transition and your practice with women. Yeah, so my practice has somewhat evolved over the years, but now I do have a clinic that focuses only on menopause. And it's because of a few reasons. It's because one, access to treatment is really important, Mm -hmm. but access to really good education and sometimes some good validation around what menopause is just as important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And being able to say to women, yes, this is actually quite common. Yes, it doesn't just magically start when your periods stop. It can be quite a long journey for many women and creating a bit of a community around that so that women are a little bit validated in how they're feeling and don't just feel like they're losing their mind. I say to people that I have more people come to me because they feel like they're losing their mind. That's the quote I get from them. Not necessarily because of hot flashes. Hot flashes are very important and we need to treat them because nobody needs to have hot flashes. However, it is the other pieces and the other parts of menopause that tend to really be quite alarming to women. And rightly so. It's things that sometimes they've never experienced in their entire lives. Mm. Yeah. Tell us about some of those symptoms. Because I think most women think menopause, they think hot flashes, maybe they think weight gain, but maybe don't identify some of the other things that they're experiencing. Yes. And I would say there's been a 
increase the amount of research availability on this topic. And there's a few things that I think are sometimes mixed up in their communication. So menopause, essentially there's estrogen receptors in just about every tissue in the body. Mm. (laughs) So when we start to think about that, we do have, and we have multiple forms of estrogen in the body, but estradiol is the one that we largely lose as part that declines with menopause. And part of the transition for that is that there is different tissue sensitivity, including the brain, which is why lots of women will describe emotional changes. There, there is a evidence about new onset of depression related to menopause, anxiety. This can also be cognitive fog that aligns with this. We also understand about disruption in sleep that tends to happen with this as well. Part of that is from hot flashes sometimes for a multitude of women, but I do say if you're not sleeping well, you're not doing anything well. So if sleep declines, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Women will report increases in even heart rate, challenges with bony, achy pain that happens and overall muscle skeletal pain. Of course, vaginal symptoms, which I talk a lot about as human beings, we're sexual people in general. That's sort of what makes mammals. And so the reality is that sexual dysfunction is often undertreated as a result of vaginal symptoms that arise. And that goes with the conversation around urinary function, certainly with vaginal dryness uh, that can occur. It it can make a lot of urinary issues worse. And I say, peeing yourself, no one wants to do that. We shouldn't be accepting that that's just part of aging because there are good treatments for it now. So I think those were some of them. Weight is a common question I get. And there's a couple of things that I think need to be talked about in terms of weight. There's the conversation of there is solid research that there is an increased risk of metabolic disease related to menopause. So metabolic risk goes up with menopause. That's for a few things. Like we see increases in LDL, we see increases in triglycerides. There's sort of some very things that are not necessarily completely weight-based, but we also see an increase in insulin resistance. Hormone therapy is weight neutral. So that's a really important point I like to make to people is it's not going to make you gain weight. It's not going to make you lose weight either. But often menopause symptoms are interfering with many other behaviors that we know are are positive. For example, if your mood declines, the relationship between that and the types of foods you're consuming, if you're not getting any sleep, you're tired. So you're often more likely to reach for things that are high in sugar or looking for that serotonin hit that your brain is looking for. So I think that's the conversation I really have with people about it's it can be supportive of the behaviors that we all know that are helpful. Mm-hmm. We don't have good research to say that putting you on hormones is going to make you lose weight. And this is why I really kind of talk about that quite a bit because I do have people reach out for that. And we spend a lot of time talking about, yeah, it's not quite a direct line, but certainly it's about treating the symptoms so that from a behavior perspective, you're able to do the things that generally the patients have the knowledge that they know they need to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. I hear the same thing. Like I get a lot of women who are like, but are you going to test my female hormones? And what about hormone replacement therapy to help me lose weight? And that's always my messaging as well Is like, there is like hormone replacement therapy doesn't equal weight loss. But what you're saying is if you feel better because all of your menopausal symptoms are being well managed with appropriate hormone replacement therapy, then everything you know to be doing is that much easier. So I really echo that message. That's really helpful. When you're looking at 
treating women with hormonal treatment, is it mainly for the hot flashes or all of those symptoms that you described, can those all be treated with hormone therapy? Yep. So this is, we have to dig into the realm of how drugs get approved when we talk about this. So there's on-label use of HRT, which is different actually in Canada versus the US. There's a few differences Mm -hmm. and there's even differences with some of the European guidelines. So realistically for what we call the genitourinary symptoms of menopause and for vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and urinary symptoms uh, and vaginal symptoms, that is on-label use of HRT in Canada. In the US and the NAMS guidelines have extended that to things like osteoporosis doesn't mean that we can't use it to treat other things. We just have to be cautious about sort of what we're describing to people and how we're explaining it to say that there is less evidence in some areas to treat you with this. Often we rely on menopausal symptom scores, which if you look at menopausal symptom scores, they're very broad. They're asking about mood. They're asking about even feeling like increase in heart rate, changes in dizziness, looking at hot flashes, certainly. And these are validated score systems that are much more holistic in looking at an entire cluster of symptoms and not just focused on hot flashes. Mm -hmm. So any of those women we would consider for treatment. Of course, this is in the context of other things that they've tried, situational stressors in their life, certainly screening for other reasons why they may have the symptoms. I mean, I say to people, that's part of my role. I want to make sure this is actually menopause and it's not something else, right? Um, which isn't terribly common, but as a prescriber, that's really my job. Right. So in a scenario, like let's say a woman came with mood changes specifically after menopause, would first-line therapy be antidepressant medication or would first-line therapy be hormone replacement? Oh, that's a great question. I would ask her what other symptoms she's having. Okay. So if this is isolated to mood only, I would say, I think we need to explore some other areas. I'm a big advocate of counseling in some way, shape or form. When we look at the evidence around and in conjunction with medication use as well. So I ask about other symptoms and I also ask her two other areas that I look at is what her experience was like in pregnancy. Mm. if she's had any pregnancies, obviously. And the other thing that I also ask is if she's previously been on medication and and it's not been a good fit for whatever reason, whether there's been side effects or or things like that. Looking at the answers to those three questions usually makes up my sort of logic around whether it's reasonable to try HRT. Okay. Obviously, if she's having any other symptoms, that's a bit of a no-brainer. Right. If she had another time in her life, which we use pregnancy is the best hormone stress test (laughs) that you can have, that we had changes then, I'm also much more inclined to treat with HRT, depending on what the symptoms were, because that's another time where big fluctuations in hormones, which is also part of menopause, brought on mood changes. Very interesting. So am I correct in thinking that there's an association between postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, and mood disorder in menopause? So it's more of a correlation is what I would say. So I'm pretty cautious about saying it's for sure a straight line. And if you have one, then you're definitely going to have the other because it's not quite that conclusive. But what we see in practice is women, especially who had a hard time postpartum, especially with that drop in hormones, Mm -hmm. 
they often report to me they have the same feelings come back when they're going into menopause. They feel like they're on that roller coaster again. The reverse is also true, I will say, that if I also have somebody who had hyperemesis during their entire pregnancy, (laughs) I start low and I go slow because they weren't terribly tolerant of having extra hormones on board. So it can also signify women who may have more side effects from HRT as well. Interesting. Okay. That's really helpful. Let's talk a little bit more about weight loss in the context of menopause. And I know that this is an area that you also help women with. We often hear that you can't lose weight after the age of 50. What do you say to that? I say that's not true. (laughs) I, so for a few fundamental reasons, I say that I think menopause, when I talk to women about weight loss specifically, and you and I have had a brief conversation about this, I kind of describe it like a wagon wheel. And I think one of the challenges we've had is really oversimplistic conversation around weight loss, around the sort of calories in, calories out, and that's the magic and move more, eat less. And that's sort of the way it is. And so I describe it like a wagon wheel where you have all these spokes in the wheels and they include things like nutrition. They include things like sleep. It does include hormones, but as I have sort of touched on before, it's more about symptom management. And we, we know that there's likely a predisposition to that symptom management. We know that there's about a third of women that will pass through menopause with almost no symptoms. I, I joke about those women as being the unicorns because for obvious reasons, I don't see them. They don't seek out care because (laughs) they don't have any reason to. And so in that conversation, I say the behaviors that protect our health are often some of the same behaviors that overlap with weight loss. And I like a good two for one deal. So I say to women, some of the things that start to drop off with menopause are the things that are actually really important for metabolic health. One being muscle mass. I have a long conversation. I say that exercise is a terrible way to lose weight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. However, I want you to maintain your muscle mass for all kinds of reasons. It's good for your bone health. It's good for your hormonal health. It's good for your metabolic health. And so it's the interventions like this, like sleep is another one. We talk about holistic coping strategies. I think the other overlap that we get with menopause that is sometimes overlooked, it's also a very transitional period in women's lives. It's where it's where we have often, we're reaching new heights in career. Like we have stressors we've never had before. So between the ages of 40 and 60, which is pretty broad, we often have young kids or teenagers. So kids that are still requiring care. Women tend to have a delayed entry into high level executive positions. And that's largely thought to be related to child rearing. So that tends to also happen around that age. (laughs) We also often have older parents that we're caring for. We sometimes have traditions in our, or or transitions rather in our relationships. So I think there's lots of things that come together at that age that I don't think are really well captured in many areas that sort of get blamed on, well, you're just getting older. Well, there's lots of contextual factors as to why that happens, including menopause, that I think you really need a holistic lens to look at the whole thing and say, okay, what do we think is impacting this? And is sort of the barrier to why all of a sudden I, whatever I did before is not working right now. Mm-hmm. And what can we adjust? But I think it needs to be a little bit broader than, oh, well, I'm 50. So it's gotta be menopause. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
With everything. Yeah. I mean, you described that so well, there's so many things coming together around that life stage that can impact emotional, mental, physical health and well-being. I think this is what I hear. And I think this is kind of general sentiment as well in our culture is that women kind of struggle in that time. And I just hear from so many patients, like how they are really struggling with menopausal symptoms. Is there a reason like why we just don't it's seemingly, we don't have really great care, not really great care. I'm not blaming the medical system, but it, it just seems like maybe there's not great access. What is that? Or is it that, yes, we have hormone replacement therapy, but it's not going to make everything. It's not going to solve everything. You're still going to suffer a little bit. Menopause, like just kind of suck it up. <laughs> you have to deal with this. Like, what, what would you say to that? Well, I think that's a, it's a broad issue. And I, I do some locum work and I do some work in primary care and I joke that it's the hardest job in the world. It is a, it's tough go in primary care these days. You're the jack of all trades and the master of none with a higher acuity than we've ever seen. Mm. But I love my primary care colleagues. And so I think it, where I'm going with that is to say, I think there is a lack of focus on women's health in general in, mm. in our traditional care system. And part of that, I think, is because there isn't necessarily an easy answer, right? It's not something I can answer in a 10-minute <laughs> yeah. frame and say, okay, yeah, do this and come back in three months, and I think it's going to be better. Right. Um, because it, it is revolving around all of those other contextual issues. So I think that's one piece of it. I also think there is a, a large knowledge translation delay. <laughs> so we are still talking about a study that's 30 years old. That is still the most commonly shared piece of information in primary care, which it's a bit unfortunate. But I also think that society at large does have this connotation that your life quality declines as you get older. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and we've kind of accepted that. Yeah. But it's also been reinforced from so many different areas, right? I mean, it's reinforced from the social so, social messaging around um ageism. It's reinforced from the social social messaging. Apparently, I'll stop saying those words because I can't say <laughs> them today. Uh, around menopause and sort of the contextual picture of what people think that is. It's being brought around the sort of notion of decline with age. <laughs> so, and I think also the, we are taught in medicine in general. And I say that for any pers- like we are part of the role of our medical system is to look at illness. So I think also the other issues that we've sort of been taught that ill, like lack of illness is really the only thing can be concerned about mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. where that's not true. We really want people to live well lives as I describe and well lives is much bigger than the absence of illness. So I think it's the meeting of all of that. I think why it's become more of an issue at the present moment also just has to do with demographics. We have the largest cohort of women going through menopause that we have ever had before. And the implications of that are huge. Like there, there actually is a very interesting study that says menopause related productivity losses can and do potentially amount to $150 billion a year worldwide. It's a massive number. And I think that speaks to more than just menopause care. I think it's, we're, we got lots of things kind of coming together at the same time. A lot of the practices that are sort of social expectation around women, and maybe this is down the feminist pathway, is is really to care for others. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you put those things 
those two things together, yeah, it means the messaging is very much, you know what, as long as you can sort of walk and talk and look after everyone else, then doesn't really matter how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad you just addressed all of that. So often what I am coaching our clients on is that you actually do need to take care of yourself. You do need to put yourself your health first, because without that, you have nothing to offer anyone else. Right. But we're socialized to believe that we are the nurturers who just need to like take care of everyone around us and that our health just slips, right. It's not the urgent things that we have to take care of every single day. And so it just loses its priority. But the other thing I so appreciate your practice and what you offer because of what you shared, it's not just about the absence of illness. And I would even expand on that. It's like, it's not just about masking symptoms of illness and dealing with chronic conditions and accepting that it's how can we promote wellness? How can we promote you living well? So I, I so align with your philosophy and your values. And so you describe that really nicely. Yeah. And I would say from a prescriber perspective and polypharmacy, I think is a huge issue. And what I'll see is that I have a group of women that will come to me that there's been a valiant attempt to help their symptoms. Mm. But what that's led to is they come to me and they're on like five different medications now (laughs) and they're still having symptoms. Whereas if they had have been treated with estrogen off the hop, then the estrogen and progesterone, if they have a uterus is the only things they likely would have needed. And we, we are getting a better understanding about the more medications you're on, probably the crappier you're going to feel overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so e- even from that perspective, I think it's, and the statements are actually very clear now, the guidelines, it's where, especially where you have things like hot flashes, things like genitourinary symptoms and things that we think are very much attributable to menopause. First line treatment is estrogen in the absence of a contraindication period, full stop. That is the guidelines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I think we're, we're still very hesitant to do. And why are we hesitant? That's the question. Yeah. So I think we're hesitant because a, I mean, I can't talk about this without talking about the women's health initiative study. Yeah. <laughs> it was a massive study. It's one of the largest studies ever conducted with women in general ever, but we have to be cautious about the conclusions we draw from that. That study was actually never designed to evaluate treatment of menopause. <laughs> so I'll let people sit with that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was we actually referred to it when we talk about menopause. Yeah. Exactly. It was actually developed to look at the role of estrogen and cardiovascular protection. And there was a few key takeaways from that. The average age of women in that study was actually well over the age of 60. It was actually done with quite an older population compared to the average age of onset of menopause, which menopause is the day your period stop. And definitely a long way from when women can start perimenopause, which is really up to 10 years before their menses actually stop. So that's a really important point because these are women who were already at an increased cardiovascular risk because of age alone. They were at an increased risk of breast cancer because of age alone. (laughs) So when we looked at that study, uh, what's very interesting is the communication and the about it was also a bit misleading. So the way that I explain that study is if we actually look at that in the context and compare it to other things we think about, and we think about it in terms of breast cancer risk, and that's the one I talk about the most because the one that people sort of 
equate estrogen with. So women on estrogen alone actually had lower risks of cardiovascular disease and lower risks of breast cancer. So that's very important to, to sort of differentiate that probably wasn't the estrogen. The other piece to look at is when we put breast cancer risk into perspective and the risk that was actually elevated, having no history of breastfeeding, obesity, and excessive alcohol intake actually all increase your risk more than HRT ever did. Mm-hmm. But we haven't told women to stop drinking wine. Well, we have in some senses, but that wasn't the focus of the conversation, right? Like if this is about reducing all causes of risk, then the conversations actually should be quite different. And so there's a few things we've learned. There's some other studies that have been done that have made us feel quite confident that early use of estrogen, quite frankly, probably decreases our risk of cardiovascular disease. The other thing is that there is definitely no poor outcomes with HRT that's started within five to 10 years of the onset of menopause and generally used for less than five to 10 years. So treating that part of menopause is actually very safe. And we have studies that, that show that. Why we talk about that is you have, as I said, we got the unicorns over here. We got the one third that don't really experience a lot of symptoms. We got the middle third that will on average have anywhere from five to 10 years of symptoms. This may start before their periods actually stop. So that's a great group that is very easily treated and often are candidates. And then we also, we have, I call them the hot flashers. Some people call them the super flashers. (laughs) (laughs) They're, They're a really interesting group because we actually now have research that says, okay, it's not just hot flashes. Women who have hot flashes have higher insulin resistance, higher LDL, higher triglycerides, overall higher cardiovascular risk. So there's something to this. This isn't just about hot flashes. Right. And those women with, with the guidelines internationally all agree on, which there's very few things that our international communities all agree on, is that it doesn't mean it's a full stop, that everyone needs to just stop HRT the moment that you've been on it for five years, it, that it becomes an individual conversation. Right. And it's really about looking, okay, let's look at all of your risk factors and decide from there what really is in your best interest. The other reason that we often shy away from it is we assume that the contraindications are the same as birth control. They're not the same as birth control. The estrogen dosing in HRT is actually significantly lower than what's in most oral contraceptives. Mm-hmm. So traditional contraindications that we've had, such as migraine with aura, such as smoking are not contraindications to hormone therapy for menopause. Mm. And that's really important because that's, that's the other biggest reason I see that, well, I've been told I can never take HRT and, and the contraindication risks are not the same. We still have like a personal risk of breast cancer is if you have significant cardiovascular disease established, not recommended. And what I mean by that, you've had a stroke, you've had a heart attack, spontaneous blood clot, meaning deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism is listed. I would say that's probably the one that's the most contentious. And it's because of differing risk of blood clots with oral estrogens versus topical estrogens, which the research emerging is that it's different, that 
Yes, oral estrogens present a slightly increased risk. However, about one in a thousand, which is actually lower than most birth controls <laughs> versus topical estrogens. There's studies showing that they don't actually present an increased risk of blood clots. Obviously somebody who's a high risk needs to see a specialist in that regards in terms okay. of going on HRT, because there's many factors to look at, but even the presence of a clotting disorder is actually not a full stop contraindication. It's a right. specialty group that needs to be assessed appropriately, but, mm-hmm. and family history of breast cancer is also not a contraindication to hormone therapy. So there's lots of things that we've sort of gone along with that isn't necessarily the case. Right. I wanted to clarify something that you said earlier, and this is just to help my understanding as well as our listeners. Is hormone replacement therapy something that can be used prior to menopause? So you said there's a 10-year kind of perimenopausal state where they're still having occasional periods or, but they're also having all these symptoms. Can we use hormone replacement therapy then? Or are we waiting till menopause being the marker? And then that's accessible. You can absolutely use it when the symptoms start. (laughs) Now there's more considerations with somebody who still has an ongoing menses, meaning if you're having really heavy bleeding, which is actually fairly typical to going into menopause for many women, I can't throw you on a whole bunch of estrogen without managing the bleeding because it's going to make it worse. Mm. So there's definitely some other contraindications. We will sometimes use some forms of birth control in that setting. We'll sometimes use things like a Mirena ID. There's sort of some different ways, but yes, the answer there is absolutely. HRT can be used to control symptoms. And it's really important because if somebody has been having hot flashes and, and the biggest time that it starts to emerge tends to be like the week leading up to your menses. And that's because often our progesterone is what sort of says, see you later long before estrogen does. Mm-hmm. And we know this, we know fertility declines and essentially production of that ovum is our largest source of progesterone. I'm sort of taking a whole bunch of biochemistry and putting into one sentence, but that's the gist of it. So that the natural fluctuations we see in the menses can also present times where people will become particularly symptomatic. So there's some, there are some different approaches. Are there women that I will use traditional HRT management for pre-menop, like perimenopause symptoms? Yes. And when we're talking about HRT, it's like a huge category, right? Hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Are there most commonly, like, is it most commonly oral? Is it most commonly transdermal? Like what forms are we using and how is that evaluated in terms of what is most appropriate? Yep. That's a great question. So most commonly prescribed is generally topical or transdermal. Now there's a couple of different methods of transdermal. You have a patch, you have topical gels, Oral is widely available and I think needs to be looked at in terms of whether that's a good fit is often related to clot risk. That's the, that's really the biggest consideration I look at in in regards to oral therapy versus, versus others. It is important. Although I criticize BMI heavily for many things with the studies that have been done with oral estrogens, almost exclusively the blood clots occurred all in women with a BMI over 30. So Mm -hmm although it's not a great indicator of metabolic health, it does appear to be a relatively good indicator of blood clot risk. So there's some sort of distinctions around that. So we have, that's sort of our estrogen grouping. If you have a uterus, you need to take progesterone because I would argue the one cancer you can absolutely cause with 
hormone therapy is uterine cancer. And that's when somebody is put on estrogen without appropriate uterine protection. The biggest ones we use now by far is micronized progesterone. There are some other things that are T-sex and serum. There's some other derivatives that have come to market recently looking at for uterine protection, which is really exciting because there is a small group of women that don't tolerate progesterone. And then up and coming in hormone therapy are definitely non-hormonal treatments for things like hot flashes, which really right now we use medications off-label if we're not able to use hormone therapy, meaning we use medications designed for depression and anxiety most often. Testosterone is also hormone therapy. And people are Mm -hmm. like, testosterone in women. Yes, guess what? We have lots of testosterone circulating. (laughs) I'm careful with my messaging around that, particularly with around weight loss is another reason that one's often brought up. So testosterone is actually on label for treatment of low libido post-menopause. Now, testosterone is a teratogen. So women that are still uh, able to become pregnant, that there's some obviously some large considerations there with um, birth defects, et cetera, because it will change the sexualization of a fetus, um, but is recognized as a treatment, is quite effective uh, for it. We have some guidelines. We do not have any pharmaceutical products in Canada for women. So it presents a bit of a, an issue with dosing and we have to be a bit creative about how we apply it, but I also include testosterone in there. Super interesting. What side, what sort of side effects can like, what sort of side effects would stop a woman from proceeding with hormone replacement therapy? And I know that like, we're talking about three different hormones and multiple, so it's a bit broad, but Yeah. So side effects that, so some women are sensitive to the progesterone in particular, which it is a smaller group. So it is thought to be quite small, like under 5%. Those women will sometimes get water retention, increased hunger, sometimes nausea, breast tenderness from the estrogen is actually probably the most commonly reported side effect, but it's rare that I have women discontinue therapy for that reason. The, then we get into for testosterone, it's by far acne, but I would say the same thing. It's rare that I have women, if it's managing their symptoms, it's rare. I have women discontinue it for that reason. Right. Those are the most common. And of course I say to women, if this isn't giving you good symptom control, and I say this about any medication, it's if this isn't doing what we wanted it to do in the first place, then we shouldn't continue it. <laughs> and like everything else, there is there are some people that don't respond to to certain medications, and that's the same with hormones. There's, but I will often try multiple. So if they had transdermal and didn't have a great response to that, and they're low risk for blood clots, I'll try oral and see if they have a better better response or a better symptom profile. If they were getting a lot of side effects, but the side effect profile of what women actually experience is actually quite low. Breakthrough bleeding. of women will get breakthrough bleeding when they initiate hormone therapy. No one thanks me for it. (laughs) (laughs) No one is like, oh yes, I got my period back. I'm super excited about that. There is a group that's about 10% that it doesn't matter what I do to their treatment regimen, it won't go away. And so then we have a conversation about, okay, is this tolerable or is it not? And, And of course, there's some investigations around that to ensure that there isn't an underlying reason of why it's happening. But yeah, breakthrough bleeding. I almost forgot to mention that because it's pretty common and it is 
not particularly worrisome at the onset or within six months of initiation of hormone therapy. The gold standard is anything over six months should be investigated to rule out other reasons why they're having it. Wow. Last question in terms of weight loss and menopause, are there like menopause specific recommendations from a behavioral lifestyle perspective that you make? The reason I ask that is because this is a heavily marketed area, right? I think about like the Galveston diet and there's recommendations of like, you need to target your eating to make your, your magnesium higher. And like, that just seems way too complicated for me. But is there anything that you think is like evidence-based that is different from other general recommendations? Yep. So there are a few, but I would argue there's very few. So this is also puts a little be in my bonnet when we have this, because I think we have to be cautious about making blanket statements and there's supplement companies making bazillions off this. So there's always going to be that. Yeah. So the magic supplement, vitamin fiber in a packet. Yeah. Yeah. So around, so there is some evidence to increasing food sources of soy based products. So things like edamame and I mean, obviously tofu and things like that. So there is some evidence that it does help to control symptoms without doing anything else, without going on HRT. So nutrition, obviously there, there is a few things like that can improve transition into menopause and provide some symptom control. Managing sleep is another one, which I know everyone's like, oh, that's what everyone tells me to do. (laughs) And which is a challenge. It's not as simple as putting away your devices and setting a bedtime into fixing your sleep. So I appreciate that's not an easy fix. The other one is weight-based training. That Mm -hmm. comes largely from bone health where osteoporotic risk goes up with menopause. So estrogen and testosterone are really important to maintaining our bone density. They drop, our bone density declines. The number one way to prevent that from happening is weight-based training. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I have everyone doing weights and it has wonderful evidence that we could, well, many people have written a book about it. So, and then the other ones are about managing some of the metabolic things that have happened with, with menopause. Like we know there is a high prevalence of people that will have a, a somewhat increased risk in, of insulin resistance. So that's really about well, you got to watch sugar intake and particularly refined sugars in that sense. So that would be the other one. Mm -hmm. What about alcohol? Oh, yes. Okay. Alcohol. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I almost forgot about that one. Very important to talk about alcohol because for a few reasons, one being it can be a big trigger. So some people can very easily isolate dietary triggers to things like hot flashes Alcohol is a big one. It's the number one reported trigger. So for that reason, it may help to prevent symptoms. Number two, it's a big source of sugar. So alcohol is a sugar. (laughs) And number three, it disrupts a lot of the other behaviors. And and it is quite common that I see women that will say to me, yeah, I'm having terrible hot flashes. I'm gaining weight. And I ask about their alcohol intake and they're like, oh yeah, I have like half bottle every night. So it's, it is really about how alcohol interplays with all of the other behaviors that are really important. And it is, and I I fully disclose, I love a 
glass of nice wine as much as anyone else. So I'm not trying to suck the fun out of everyone's life, but it is, it can be a big contributor to triggers for women. Mm -hmm. Okay. So helpful. I know your practice is already super busy, but I suspect that there are going to be some listeners who are like, Oh my goodness, I really do need your help. Where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. So prospermenopause.ca is my menopause focused practice that I have with an RN colleague of mine. And we're both very passionate about this. And that's the easiest place you can book appointments directly on there. Right now we are seeing patients in Ontario, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. We're hoping to expand to other provinces and that will be updated on the website. We also are on Facebook and Instagram and really try to put a lot of content out around what is good messaging and good education to create a bit of a community around what we sort of talked about at the end that these symptoms are very real. And there's some things that absolutely you can do yourself. I would say that's where the large group of our sort of lifestyle-based intervention information lies are on those social media outlets. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to link all of that in the show notes, but at Prosper Menopause Clinic is Instagram and then Facebook is Prosper Menopause Clinic as well. And Shannon shared the website, prospermenopause.ca. Thank you so much. Women all over are thanking you for this. Like I've learned so much and I've really benefited from this. And I know so many women have as well. So thank you for coming on today. I so appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed listening to the High on Life podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and review it on Apple Podcasts.